Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. The words ghost town commonly conjure images of empty, narrow streets lined with wooden buildings. Dusty verandas support blackened, gaping windows, and if you wander far enough, you might come across a saloon or perhaps a general store. But abandoned villages are not just forgotten remnants of a mining boom. People flee their homes, sometimes overnight or over decades, when it no longer makes sense to stay. Ghost towns are left behind to the passage of time because of the ravages of war, natural disaster, or environmental destruction. But sometimes they can be revived and reconstructed, home again to new life. So let's cast off our assumptions and excavate the derelict, the deserted, and the desolate ghost town. So I have never visited a ghost town, Harris. In fact, I thought that they were only the stuff of Scooby-Doo episodes. Oh, I loved those <laughs> Scooby-Doo episodes. Those and the haunted house ones. But I have hit a few ghost towns in my day. Some were more remarkable than others. Well, I'm intrigued by the idea of it, but I think if the opportunity presented itself, I might be a little freaked out. Mm. I think I could drive through, but I think wandering around the empty buildings might creep me out a bit. Well, I have a little surprise road trip for you this summer, Walker. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yep. I'm scared, Harris. Yeah, you're going to have to wait and see. <laughs> oh, no. I was surprised to find out, though, that we have quite a few ghost towns in Canada and some in Ontario mm -hmm. as well. Yep, we do. Certainly a lot more than I expected, actually. Frankly, I've never happened upon a ghost town, so I just assume that even if they weren't entirely fiction, they likely didn't exist near me. Right. In fact, according to the Ontario Ghost Town website, as of 2019, over 200 ghost towns were identified, including some with minor populations. So how is a ghost town a ghost town if it has a minor population? Right. I was thinking actually the same thing. I came across a few definitions of a ghost town. I think the most commonly understood definition is an abandoned village, town, or city, usually one that contains substantial visible remaining buildings and infrastructure, such as roads. However, some say that a ghost town could also be a town with few or no remaining inhabitants. Others are more vague, meaning a town which used to be busy and wealthy, but is now poor and deserted. Okay. Some definitions even include a reason for the abandonment. For instance, a once flourishing town, wholly or nearly deserted, usually as a result of the exhaustion of some natural resource. Wow, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there were so many definitions for a ghost town. Actually, my son and I were driving to Ottawa in March, okay. and we were so excited to see that there was a ghost town on our route, so we were planning to stop and visit. But when we passed through, there were actually two fully lived-in houses, cars in the driveway, smoke coming out of the chimneys. There were no derelict buildings whatsoever. Apparently, there were some foundations you could maybe try and find under the snow, but... Anyway, we were quite disappointed, but we still laugh about it today. Well, maybe all but those two left. Right. Often populations of towns dwindle because of a lack of local employment. Either a natural resource dried up or a factory closed or something made the place unlivable. Right, like Love Canal, New York. Do you remember that, Walker? I do. 
That town was impacted so terribly and tragically by a local chemical waste dump in the 1970s. So I think there are actually a few people living there now, Harris, but it wasn't even safe to visit, in my opinion, way back when. No. Um, The majority of ghost towns that I came across, though, were fishing villages that suffered during hard economic times or mining towns that were mined dry. Right. A lot of those empty outport villages in Newfoundland. No work, no livelihood, no residents. Right. Bannock in Beaverhead County, Montana, which was the capital of Montana for a short while, was founded in 1862. The population declined after the easily accessible ore had been mined in 1870. By 1940, the town had been abandoned. And another example, like Bodie in Mono County, California, is one of the oldest ghost towns in the United States, established in 1859. After gold was discovered, the area experienced a boom in the 1870s, but it was downhill from there and eventually abandoned in 1942. So that took some time, like Mm -hmm. 70 plus years. But in some instances, the transition from thriving to desolate can be quite quick and not necessarily for economic reasons, right? Oh, definitely. War and civil unrest are two major contributors to the formation of ghost towns. In the 1970s, the Rorosha section of Farmagusta in Cyprus was a major global tourist destination drawing top shelf celebrities. But when Turkey invaded Cyprus in 1974 and the Greek and Turkish conflict began, 15,000 inhabitants were forced to leave. And they left Harris in such a hurry that they left behind valuables. It is my understanding that since 2020, a small portion of Verosha can be explored. The rest is fenced off and out of bounds to everyone except primarily the military. And according to an article on the history website, Six Famous Ghost Towns in Abandoned Cities, it's described as a crumbling ghost town with trees growing out of the floors of restaurants and homes. And bell-bottom pants, Harris, you can see hanging in the store windows. And 1974-era cars still parked in car dealerships. Wow, that's kind of cool, eh? It would be really odd but neat to witness that site frozen in time. I agree. Natural disasters as well can create conditions for a ghost town. One of the best examples of this is Krakow, located in southern Italy. Krakow is an old town which dated to the 8th century BC. At one time, it had a university, churches, even a watchtower and a monastery. It was quite a dense town, though, and prone to landslides, flooding, and earthquakes. And to look at the photos, it's really surprising, actually. They're, all the buildings are built on top of one another. Oh, yeah, wow. it's so... really, really dense. Really quite attractive, but it's not surprising that it suffered over time. Right. That sounds like it would be dangerous, though. It, It does. Many of the people fled that volatile area and emigrated either to nearby towns or to the U.S. And today, the city is locked and can be toured only with a guide. 35 visitors are admitted at a time and you must wear a hard hat because of falling debris. That sounds fascinating. I think I might have to look into having a little visit. Well, there you go. (laughs) Krakow has even been used for the backdrop of movies like The Passion of the Christ and also Quantum of Solace. That doesn't surprise me. There aren't too many places on earth that can give that ghost town vibe except for ghost towns so natural environmental issues can force people to vacate but what about 
unnatural disasters. Yes, similar to the Love Canal in Giamanek, Romania, where 400 families resided until 1978, the dictatorship decided to use the valley as a runoff basin for toxic waste for the nearby enormous copper mine. Nice. Apparently, most of the families were promised this huge payout to leave, which didn't materialize as promised. Some townspeople ended up staying and just moved to higher ground. Perhaps not a great decision, however, Giamana has been called one of Europe's worst ecological disasters, Harris. Apparently, a poisonous lake is growing in bows of very unnatural colors, red, orange, and sometimes turquoise. Not what you want to see in a lake. No. And if you go online, you can see some of these images. They are really quite shocking. That's the expected result of heavy metal pollutants poisoning the soil and groundwater. That's so sad when that's your home. Your description of the lake actually reminds me of the natural luminescent ponds in Dalal, Ethiopia. These salt-covered pools are filled with hot, acidic water, which emits toxic gases. Sounds lovely. Hmm. Dalal is referred to as the gateway to hell. Didn't we cover the gateway to hell in Ireland already? Yes, in Rathcrom. <laughs> this is another gateway to hell. Ireland's going to have to take it up with Ethiopia to see <laughs> where it really exists. Well, the reason it's called the gateway to hell is... Because not only does it offer these lovely water bodies, it's also considered the hottest place on earth with a daily average high of 105 degree temperatures and 60% humidity. Holy smokes. That's hot. That is hot. In fact, Dalal is considered a ghost town now because it is no longer inhabited full time. Although I can't really imagine why it was ever inhabited. Apparently, there were mining operations there some decades ago, but it is possible to visit, but you will need to travel by camel and hire a guide. Hmm. Well, we can't have this conversation without talking about one of the most notorious ghost towns on the planet today. I'm talking about Pripyat, Mm -hmm. the city located near Chernobyl, where the nuclear power plant employees lived and worked. Yeah, I remember the Chernobyl disaster. Do you, Walker? I do. It was so terrifying for everyone on the planet, but especially for the people who live there and particularly for those who worked in the plant that day. Well, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with this event, on April 26th, 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear plant experienced a meltdown, which released roughly 400 times more radioactivity into the environment than the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. The radiation spread rapidly around the world. Just for context, Harris, the meltdown occurred at 1 a.m. on April 26, and just two days later, the particles were detected as far away as Sweden. Yeah, a fast and very tragic toxic disaster. As I said, not just for the residents of Pripyat, but for the world. Right, it was. And did you know that in recent years, though, Chernobyl and the nearby city have been tourist destinations? I did know this. Dark tourists love that kind of thing. But is it safe to visit Walker? Well, according to Responsible Travel, Chernobyl is generally considered safe to visit. There are still many radioactive hotspots to avoid, especially within the tighter 10-kilometer exclusion zone. But in most places, you will be exposed to less radiation than you would be on a long-haul flight. Wow. So would you go, Walker? 
Uh, I don't think so. I, I think I could be talked into it. I've really? seen footage. Yeah. <laughs> Are we I, talking an international road trip now? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen footage of the city. It is super eerie. I think I'll pass, Harris. Okay. It is considered to be dangerous to visit on your own and recommended that you join an organized tour so that you know where is and isn't safe. Mm-hmm. Though nowadays the war in Ukraine... I expect there isn't many visitors. No, I imagine not. But I'm sure there are people chomping at the bit to go the moment that they're able. Ghost towns are fascinating to so many of us. There are beautiful picturesque ghost towns, eerie dismantled villages, and those like Pripyat, which serve as a lesson or memorial for humanity. There's such a variety. I wonder why we're so intrigued by them. Maybe it's the ghost in the term ghost town. People are so captivated by the unknown or paranormal. So maybe that's the draw. Well, there's a definite creep factor. The whole idea of a community being abandoned is truly eerie. It is, for sure. It reflects back to us our own impermanence. Mm. These were places that people once lived, thrived, loved, and then nothing. A lot of these places appear to have a post-apocalyptic dystopian aesthetic. Ooh, like the Walking Dead set. Yes, and sometimes like my front yard, sadly. <laughs> so they're creepy, but they're really sad too. The BBC explored just why we are so interested and intrigued by ghost towns. They suggested that these towns invite us to briefly visit our own demise or possibly allow us to experience a dystopian landscape we are familiar with from books and film. Just like we've been saying, Walker. Right. Many of these communities did not expect the turn of events, though, that forced the abandonment, and that maybe our fascination is due to the fact that ghost towns offer us the opportunity to imagine, what if this happened to me? Well, I think that's pretty spot on. But some of these ghost towns don't stay uninhabited forever, do they, Harris? No, they don't. Our next guest has firsthand knowledge of just how a ghost town could be transformed. We are thrilled to introduce Fiona Thornton, international manager at the renowned luxury brokerage Luximos in Portugal, affiliate of Christie's International Real Estate. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Fiona. Thank you so much, Heather. It's great to be here. It is. It's so nice to see your face, even though we're across the pond from each other. Lauren and I are intrigued by a current listing that you have of an entire village for sale just outside the village of Aruca. So what makes this particular village attractive? Oh, it's such an amazing area. You know, northern Portugal is really beautiful. And, and this, this particular village is it's about an hour from Porto. So it's, it's, it's great for, you know, you can a- access it with international flights, perhaps take a night stopover in Porto. Mm-hmm. And then you're just in this beautiful, biodiverse area. It's a, it's a geopark. It's an area of strong geographical heritage. It's about nature and, and everything that's natural about Portugal. Oh, that's lovely. And is it close to the Douro Valley? Yes, it's it's not too far away from the Douro Valley. It's closer. So the um the Paiva River is is more local and, and um there are wonderful walkways along there. They've built these raised wooden walkways so people can they can do hikes, they can do cycling in the area, mountain biking, and, and they're not having a, an impact on the ground. Oh, that's lovely. That is lovely. There's even some very scary bridges. So they, they have the, the longest or one of the longest in the world, a pedestrian suspension bridge. 
Oh, I'm not sure I'm I'm game for that, Fiona. No, because it's 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 built as a metal frame so you can see straight down. It's- oh my gosh. Well, maybe some of our listeners are keen, but I might just go for the raised walkways and and, and use my own two feet on the solid ground. <laughs> So how often do properties of this nature, because I understand it's a full village, how how often do they come to market? And is there a commonality that these kinds of properties share when it comes to why people actually left? Yeah, so they're quite a rarity. In the last four years, uh, we, we had one in the Algarve about three years ago, a similar size because this property is is spread over 10 hectares. There are 11 houses there. And and in in times gone by, 14 families used to live there. Um, What's happened is as as education became quite important and people started to to go to college and and university further away from home and then for work, you know, people just naturally started to move out of little villages like that. Right. Times are changing and, and the things that were important then are becoming important again now yes circle right Uh, we're seeing more people becoming more interested in a more natural rural based lifestyle as opposed to flocking to the cities for employment yeah absolutely so I I mean this this particular village would be you know I I would recommend it somebody that that was looking at at an ecotourism project oh because that kind of thing is in really high demand. Down in the Algarve, we have, you know, the, there are there are definitely little projects now that that focus more on the natural side of things and and our blue skies and and the wonderful plants. You know, in the, in this area in the north, the the landscape is covered with pines, different kinds of pines and oaks and and wild herbs everywhere. So you just have this beautiful colour and smell, and it depends what time of year you go out, but the spring flowers are amazing. It is absolutely stunningly gorgeous. I've only been to Portugal once, and I was really amazed by the diversity of the landscape as you do go from the north to the south. It's very different. So anybody who's just been to the south or just been to the north, I encourage you to go back and revisit because it, it can be quite different. Even from the coast to the interior, there's a lot of a lot of beauty there. There's a there's a road that runs almost north to south called the N2. And it's it's a little bit of a tourist attraction in the same way that Route 66 is in, in the US. And and mm. Um, so you have these these wonderful historic hotels to stay in on your way either up or down the country and there's a big focus on local gastronomy and industry and 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 you know the the things that the local villages make and so Aruka is very close to this road so you could you could sort of integrate that in a in a grand tour of Portugal and just get to know all of our you know the wonderful forests that we have yeah and that kind of connects too to what you mentioned before about this village would be excellent for an ecotourism venture so in your experience and I know that these properties as you say are a rarity what kinds of clients are interested in purchasing an entire 
unoccupied village? Is there a lot of work involved? What's involved there? I, yeah, I think there would be quite a lot of work involved. Uh, and at the moment, the, the inquiries that we've had have mainly come from, from Europeans, a couple of, of North American inquiries as well. But it needs to be somebody with that energy and that mindset to, to put something back to its natural state you know we can we can do wonderful things now using natural materials local materials local stones and woods and and so you can create these almost historic buildings that are still modern you know we have great options for internet connections for example in places that are quite rural now so um so people could could come and, and switch off, but if they need to occasionally switch back on again, they're not completely isolated. You know, there, there are all kinds of little special touches that, that people could could do. But I, I think it would be, it would have to be somebody that, that wanted to spend their time here. So someone that lived here, I don't think you could do this remotely because I think such care needs to be taken if you're going to do it properly. What considerations, Fiona, must be taken into account by any interested buyers? For instance, is it a different process for international parties? It's not that it's a different process, but it's the language is a barrier. I think working as a brokerage, I will be there to support a client right the way through the whole process, but also there'll be a team if they're going to be rebuilding and renovating some of the houses, you know, we'll we'll need to organise all the legal sides of that for the client. But very important to get a a sympathetic lawyer that that speaks whatever language is, is the buyer's first language, be that French or English because we need to see the documentation in dual languages and you know the Portuguese language on a document is always the one that would stand up in court so you need to be sure that the the translations are being done properly and accurately and you know because you would be in a foreign country buying a property that in this case you know a a project like this is is quite a big deal so it's, it's it's good to have the right support around you and make sure that before you proceed with the next step and the next step and the next step that you understand every everything um, that you're absolutely, doing. Absolutely, absolutely. So what might a purchaser expect once they've purchased a village? What might be their first steps in repair and reconstruction? Would you have uh, contacts as well that a potential buyer could lean on in terms of connecting them with some local people? Yes, definitely. We can we can connect them with local people. But one thing that I was I was sort of thinking about earlier, there's a valley that's it's about 150 kilometers away from this village, but they've been busily rewilding the area. And so taking out a lot of the man-made things that, that prevent spreading and introducing some of the indigenous species back to the area and I I would say you know be great to contact them and and just sort of talk about how how perhaps you could integrate that into the project and because I think rewilding is becoming in Europe so important you know the when when people are planting the wrong trees and doing the wrong things it leaves us vulnerable to things like fires. The, the indigenous trees of that area don't burn easily. Mm-hmm. But something like eucalyptus, which was introduced, it does. The nature that we have is beautiful. So it's important that we, we respect what should be there. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, it's 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 not a regular project or a regular property purchase. So do your planning, take it slowly, 
and take it step by step if it's going to be a long-term investment for you. If our listeners are interested in purchasing a property in Portugal, whether it's a condominium apartment in the Algarve or a Quinta in the Alentejo, what would be the first steps that they would take? I think the first steps are are to find an agent that you trust um, and an agent that that has, if not a portfolio that that, um, that covers what the client is looking for, at least the means to access that kind of property. You know, so somebody that works for them in their interests, because I think too often people think they need to speak to ten different agents when actually just having one person working for them who can speak to other agents on their behalf or that who already has an extensive portfolio of properties in the area and knows the area very well. You know, for, for me, I find when, when I'm speaking with clients, especially when, you know, they're from an English speaking country and, and they find it a relief. I, I understand all of the nuances of what they're looking for and, and I can get that for them and make their dreams come true. You know, that's, that's the part of my job that I love the most is, is making sure that you know we we take the wish list and we increase that. We don't we don't sort of look at what we have to remove for them to make the purchase. We we add to it. And that's really important. So absolutely. And 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 you're not brand new as well to the area as well. You've been there <laughs> quite a true. while. So you I know. have, yeah, yeah. So this time I've been here six years, but altogether it's about 14 years. Wow. So, Yes, and and also a good legal team because I think it's actually good to have a a lawyer in place before you start looking at the property because so often people don't understand the buying costs and and that process. And although I remain involved in that and, and here in our offices in the Algarve, you know, we actually have somebody that will support them on the legal side along with their lawyer. But everybody needs an independent lawyer to to go ahead with a, a purchase, and and so it's good to at least have done a, a video call with them before they arrive. Oh, that's a really good idea. Absolutely, before they actually start looking around, etc., or getting too deep into a property, it's always good to have that extra hand to hold. And it's a little different there in Portugal than it is over here in Canada. Yes, I, I think construction in Canada probably is a, is a lot faster than it is here. If you if you're talking about a house, it can be it can be 18 months to 2 years and that's not including the licensing part of the process. Good to know. Well, this actual property reminds me of one a family friend had uh, when we were talking about the eco potential here. Um, we actually had a family friend that had a piece of property and it became like a family compound which one child of each family member had a home on the property. And I see so much potential in that as well. Yes, for anybody with a large family, I mean, it, it could just be the, the best holiday village in the world for them. You know? Everybody has their own house and all the wonderful memories that they would make. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Fiona. It was a pleasure speaking with you. If you'd like to learn more about this property in Aruka, you can find a link to the listing in our show notes, or you can contact Fiona directly at www.luximus.pt. Thanks so much, Fiona. Thank you, Lauren. I'm so tempted by that property, Harris. And Fiona, Fiona would be such a great asset to make a purchase like that, wouldn't she? She sure would. Adopted ghost towns can have real and lively futures. 
One village in Italy, Gask, was abandoned in the 19th century and is now partly owned by the Canova Association. Mm -hmm. The aim of the Canova Association, together with Italian and foreign universities, is to provide workshops and field camps where people from around the world can learn architectural restoration. They focus on reconstructing the original buildings from the rubble. They have done some really interesting things, like refurbishing an amphitheater where they now hold concerts. So I have to say, I love the idea that a forgotten town is being transformed. And not Mm -hmm. only that... The situation is being used as a global teaching experience. I know. It's fantastic. We don't hear about that often. No, it's amazing. But this isn't the only ghost town that someone is trying to rejuvenate. Have you ever heard of Brent Underwood? No, I haven't. Okay. So Brent Underwood is an American entrepreneur who purchased an abandoned mining town called Cerro Gordo Mines with the aim of fixing up the property's 22 existing structures and exploring the abandoned settlement in order to open it up to tourists. Founded in 1865, Cerro Gordo is located in the Inyo Mountains in California. The town was populated until 1938, but the mining dried up and the area was abandoned. At its height, the town had quite a reputation walker. Ooh, what kind of reputation? I know. As reported by Vice, who interviewed Underwood, law enforcement steered clear of the 5,000 resident town where shootouts were frequent and there was around at least one murder a week. Wow, a lovely (laughs) reputation. Mr. Underwood claimed that a building that was recently burnt had bloodstains left behind after a man was killed on the saloon floor and holes in the buildings are evidence of this sordid history. Wow, that's pretty neat. I mean, not the murder, but (laughs) everything else. Mm. How much did he spend on the town? So he purchased the 360-acre property in 2018 for $1.4 million US. Okay, well, that sounds reasonable, but quite an ambitious project too. I'd say, and it is very isolated. It's reportedly 30 miles to the closest grocery store, and the reconstruction is slow going. What is kind of neat is that Mr. Underwood lived in the abandoned town throughout the whole pandemic, refurbishing it. Can you imagine? It's like isolation on top of isolation. Yeah, with that violent history, I would think that Sarah Gordo has some resident ghosts Mm. who I would not want to isolate during the pandemic with. (laughs) Not part of your bubble, Walker? No, not in my bubble. (laughs) Funny you say that. Brent Underwood does say that his experience at Sarah Gordo has made him believe in ghostly beings. Ha! Thought so. (laughs) So what's been his experience? He's claimed that a light in one of the buildings turns on by itself. He's seen some, I know, he's seen some items move around too on their own. So sensibly, he doesn't stay in any of the buildings that are thought to be haunted. Paranormal investigators have confirmed that there are ghosts on site. Okay, so no overnights for me there, Harris. Do all ghost towns live up to their spooky name, though? No, not all, but I did come across quite a few that are said to be haunted. Like? Well, there is the Isla de las Muñecas in Mexico, also known as the Island of the Dolls. Okay, so I actually like dolls, but it's a frightening name to begin with, though. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't (laughs) like dolls, and it totally creeps me out. On this island, on Tishuilo Lake, there are hundreds of decaying, hanging dolls, which were all hung by Don Julian Santana. Apparently in the 1950s, Santana found a drowned girl and hung the dolls up in remembrance of the dead girl. 
Okay, this is a very macabre memorial. I have to say the decaying bit doesn't help. It's super creepy, but get this. Santana drowned in the lake in 2001, and the dolls are said to be haunted by him and the girl. Of course they are. I, I just got chills. Me too. It's super creepy. And here's another scary one for you, Walker. Okay. When in Dubai, if you want to experience not just a ghost town, but one with supernatural connections, you can visit the village of Al-Madam, which is just an hour outside of Dubai. Al-Madam consists of two rows of houses and a mosque. The inhabitants left in a hurry, leaving all of their possessions behind and their doors open. So in a big rush. There are a few sensible theories behind the rapid evacuation, like sandstorms and that kind of thing. But one theory claims that the residents left because an evil jinn named Um Dawais with cat eyes and machetes for hands haunts the village. Oh, I don't like the image that calls Me up. neither. Very, very Edward Scissorhands. Yes. <laughs> very, very scary. I hear that even Pripyat has a ghost. Oh, really? Yeah. Apparently a nuclear physicist could hear someone screaming to be rescued inside the power mm. station and random things turn on and lights turn off. Well, being the site of such devastation, it doesn't surprise me that anguished spirits might linger there. But I do have one more for you, Walker. Okay, so where are we going now here? Sometimes I feel like our podcast is a little like Where's Waldo? Where in the world are Harrison Walker now? I love it. Now you've got me thinking of bobblehead figurines with us in toques. Ah, very Canadian. Very Canadian. Everyone should know their roots, Walker. I'm taking the tale back to North America now. It's St. Elmo, Colorado was once a mining town and home to 2,000 people. It wasn't a huge place, but by 1930, there were only seven residents left who ran the hotel and the general store. Okay, two very important services. Right. But listen to this. St. Elmo, one of the best preserved ghost towns in Colorado, is also said to be one of the state's most haunted places. It was the ghost of Annabelle, daughter of Anna and Anton Stark, who ran the local hotel, among other businesses in town. Despite the town's population dwindling to almost nothing over the decades, Annabelle and her brother stuck it out in the hotel without electricity or running water as the town crumbled about their ears. Apparently, they were also filthy and never bathed, which might have something to do with the lack of running water. It was said that they were eventually removed to a mental institution for their safety, and Annabelle died shortly after her release. Strange things have been reported at this hotel site, Doors slamming, figures in the window, and even old Annabelle has been spotted walking around protecting her property. I wonder what possessed the two star children to stay on, even if the town was decaying around them. I don't know. Maybe that's all they know. Right. But these ghost towns do deteriorate without the care and attention of their human inhabitants rather drastically. Mm-hmm. One of the most beautiful abandoned towns is located in Turkey, overlooking a bay on the one side of the village and a valley on the other. Kayakoy was emptied in 1923 as a result of a population exchange between Greece and Turkey. The area now comprises of 350 abandoned homes and two churches, all of which have suffered due to the harsh weather. Keakoy has been adopted by UNESCO as a world friendship and peace village. I've seen images of this village and it really looks like 
a nice place and an interesting place to wander. It does. There's also a private museum there too. So if you're interested in dropping by there, Harris, be sure to stop in. Okay. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) It's amazing how quickly Mother Earth reclaims what's hers though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We build these cities, towns, and villages and think they're permanent, but in no time at all, Mother Nature takes over once again. That's right. Like Hutuan Village, which Life Magazine called the Emerald City. Hutuan Village on the island of Shengshan, 64 kilometers east of Shanghai, was once a fishing village of 3,000 people. Originally built in the 1950s, the village was abandoned by most of its residents in the 1990s. But since then, the entire village has been completely covered in vines. It's become a favorite tourist destination on account of its natural beauty, but it can be a little tricky to get to. There are a few people who still live there who make their livelihoods as tour guides, charging admission fees, and selling water to those determined tourists who do find their way. Well, that makes sense. It's important not to let these towns and villages just crumble into obscurity, though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So many have historical importance. Some are even identified as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Mm -hmm. One of the coolest historical abandoned places I've visited was an island off the coast of Crete called Spinalonga. Mm -hmm. Spinalonga was a leper colony in the early 1900s and was actually one of the last active leper colonies in the world. This beautiful little island's inhabitants formed their own community with a theater, cinema, they had whitewashed homes, and wandering the streets there, you could really feel the life it once held. Once a cure was found, though, for leprosy, the population dispersed, but you can still visit it by boat from Crete. It even has the ruins of a 16th century Venetian fortress, so it's pretty cool. How we humans have managed disease over time really is fascinating, though often cruel. Yeah, but nothing is as cruel as the legacy of war and the atrocities committed in the name of a state. Last summer, my family and I visited the town of Oradour-sur-Glane in the southwest of France. This peaceful town was invaded by the Nazis on June 10th, 1944, killing 643 people. Only seven escaped. Somehow, 15 other residents also managed to avoid the massacre. But the Nazis burned people to death in the church, and they just shot people on the streets wherever they found them. It was total madness. Orador sur Glen serves as a national monument today and a reminder of the atrocities committed by the Nazis. As you walk through the shells of the buildings, the rusted cars that are in people's driveways, and even the steel frames of beds, chairs, pots, pans, other household items. It just slaps you in the face with the grim reality that took place there. It's really an important pilgrimage to make. Well, I will have to agree with you there, Harris. I will take your advice and make it a point to go. Yeah, you won't regret it. Another site worth mentioning is Hashima Island, otherwise known as Battleship or Ghost Island in Japan, which is another UNESCO World Heritage Site. This tiny abandoned island was once home to a very densely built population, having had its start as a coal mining community. Hashima Island serves as a testament to Japan's rapid industrialization, but also notably as a stark reminder of war crimes committed there. It was a site of forced labor prior to and during World War II. You can join a tour if you want with advanced reservations. We must really do what we can not to repeat the mistakes of past generations, Harris. Mm -hmm. Traveling to these sites, educating ourselves and others, this can all really make a difference. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. 
Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you.